Okay, so Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Here's the, the first three verses that we'll, we'll take. And it says, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, what had been done? The decree for, for the extermination, for, for the killing, for the massacre, for the genocide of all the Jews, right? Haman goes way onto the other side when Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. He says, well, I'm not just going to kill Mordecai. Let's just annihilate all of them. It says, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. Remember those three, those, those little words, fasting, weeping, and wailing? We'll come back to that. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, a couple of things going on here. Remember, I don't, I don't know, like we read the sackcloth and, and ashes and we're just kind of like, oh, yeah, that's just kind of, you know. Imagine, though, the, the idea behind the sackcloth and the ashes, and sometimes it would almost be like, like goat hair or camel's hair or something. The idea behind it is that when you put it on, you're not allowed to become comfortable in it. It's a very visceral, again, imagine like going out and getting a burlap sack, tearing it open and putting on, and just how itchy and uncomfortable and painful that would be. And the idea is that as you wear this thing, it's this kind of tangible reminder of the mourning and the pain and the suffering that you're going through, right? The ashes, again, as you put the ashes on your face or as you put the ashes on your head, you have this ghost-like appearance, right, that you're saying, there is something so grievous and so, and so deathly in here. And maybe it harkens back to Genesis when uh, God says, from dust you have come and to dust you will return, right? So again, we're just kind of like, oh yeah, they just kind of put on some, you know, some old clothing. The idea behind this, and again, in the midst of all this, this decree, that thing, that all the Jews were going to be exterminated, they put on the sackcloth and the ashes. Now, one of the things that becomes a big part of this chapter that we're going to get talked about in a little bit is this idea of fasting, okay? Now, when we think about fasting, and it's been funny, I've been learning some stuff about this too, and I remember when I did the apprentice experience, I had one of my professors talk about fasting. A lot of times when we think about fasting, let me start here at the bottom, we think about fasting as an activity that we do for a benefit or a favorable response, right? When we think about fasting, I'm going to deny myself a meal. I'm going to deny myself a, a particular something in order that I can get something from God. Are you with me on that? Does that sound kind of right? right? When you read the Old Testament, when you read the scriptures, fasting often, more often than not, it comes in response to a sacred or a grievous moment. Right? You don't really read in the scriptures where people would fast they would deny themselves so that they can get something from God, right? That's not really how fast. And if, you, if we ignore this piece right here, um, we miss a huge part of it. My professor, his name's Scott McKnight, and he says it like this. He says, what the Bible means by fasting is suspension of all food and sometimes drink for a designated time not the suspension of kinds of food or internet or social media. What, I like this. What happens when we use the word, quote, fast with Twitter, I suggest we are losing the uh, fundamental elements of fasting, the response 
to grievous, sacred moments. Again, the, they, all the Jews put on their, their sackcloth and they mourn and they weep and they wail and they fast. Again, because of this sacred, this grievous moment that's about to happen, right? And so in Matthew, if you've got a Bible, turn real quickly to Matthew chapter 9. Notice even Jesus picks up this theme in Matthew chapter 9. Um, this is on page 680, if you want to flip there real quick. John's disciples, they come to Jesus. Verse 14 says, The disciples came and asked him, they asked Jesus, How is it that we fast? Uh, how is it that we and the Pharisees, we fast often, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn, grieve, right? How can they mourn or grieve while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast, right? The fasting here is not to get the bridegroom back. It's not like, hey, well, if we fast and we do all these sorts of spiritual disciplines and Jesus is going to come back. There is a fast. One of the key elements of fasting is that there is this fast that is in response to grievous, difficult moments. Have you ever noticed that... um, how can I say this? Oftentimes, maybe after a funeral, right? Sometimes people will have big, um, a, a big celebration or there's a potluck or something. Everybody gets together and eats. The people who are directly affected by that death have, for the most part, no interest in eating, right? They're not hungry. They don't have that capacity. There is almost kind of that built-in fast to them. And this is kind of almost like a biblical thing. You see people after the passing of a loved one, this sacred, grievous moment. And it's not like, oh man, I'm so hungry right now. I could just go out to McDonald's and, you know, or wherever. It's, it's, you have no appetite, right? And so the Bible was kind of declaring that very early on. So Jesus says, when the bridegroom's taken from them, then they will fast, right? That's how Jesus describes it. Um, so I would say this too, and I was thinking about as we were praying here, right? Some of these things that these grievous moments that we're experiencing here, right? If you are experiencing a grievous moment, I put it like this. If you're traversing through pain and difficulty and confusion and hurt, perhaps an appropriate response here is a fast, Right? A biblical fast, say, of food for a specific time. Again, to shift our perspective on fasting a little bit, instead of saying, hey, you know, Lent's coming up and I'm going to give up Twitter or I'm going to give up Facebook or I'm going to give up whatever, because that's all we think, that's 98.9% of what modern Christians think of as fasting. Right? We don't think like, hey, I just lost a loved one or I just went through this very difficult moment or I'm, I'm in the midst of this loss or this hurt, maybe the appropriate response for me is to enter into a fast, just to abstain myself from food and say, Lord, I will survive. Man does not live on bread alone. I will survive on the words that come 
from God, right? So at the very beginning of, of, of this chapter four here, um, Mordecai realizes, again, I don't think Mordecai in this moment is fasting in order that he's going to get something out of this. He's just simply responding to this grievous moment, right? And everybody, all of Israel is responding with him. There's weeping and wailing and fasting and mourning, right? Many, at the, verse three, many lay in just sackcloth and ashes, right? Um, ready for the next paragraph? Verse four. Two verses. Buckle up. When Esther's eunuch and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent out clothing to him, or she, she sent clothes for him to put on instead of the sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned, what does your, your guys' Bible say right there? What does it say? Hathic? Anyone else? Pathic? I don't know why all the, the translations that I was reading, it pronounces it like, like this. Hat, did anybody have that? Hat hatch? Anybody got that one? No? Interesting. Um, yeah, this is interesting in this NIV. I, I would, the, the one that I was reading on, I keep just like a, a desk Bible that I just always will flip through, and it was, it was hat hatch that way. Um, I want to talk about this guy. So anyway, then Esther summoned... Um, Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her. There's all sorts of great children's names here in the Bible too, but if you guys are interested. Um, and ordered him to find out what was troubling him and why. Now, here we have our, our eunuch again, and we, we get introduced to this man, um, as, I, as I was thought of, was Hathak or Hathak. Um, and again, we have this messenger between... Um, Esther and Mordecai, right? Esther's in the palace. Mordecai's mourning. He's not allowed in the palace or near the palace, right? Esther hears about him, and we're going to read about this kind of back and forth um, between Esther and Mordecai, kind of these, these messages that are going back and forth. Now, all that he does is relay messages. That's his job. That's all he does, right? Now, do we think about how important his role is in this narrative? How crucial his role is in the salvation, the existence of the Jews, right? He's a simple messenger. That's all he does. Esther says one thing. She takes it to Mordecai. Mordecai says one thing. He takes it back to Esther. That's all this young man does. Um, one, about, one of the commentaries that I was reading by a guy named uh, Walter um, Warren Wearsby, he commented about how God uses obscure and insignificant people for crucial tasks and crucial moments, right? Obscure, insignificant people for crucial tasks and crucial moments. And he says, he gives these examples. I love these examples. He says, uh, who was the little boy who gave Jesus his fish and loaves? Right? Kind of pops onto the scene for a verse or two. Here you go, Jesus. Right? Who were the men who rescued Paul from Damascus, right? Paul's facing opposition. Paul's facing uh, death threats. They're, they're trying to kill him. You get these, man, these men who lower him out of the city, 
What was the name of the little girl who told Naaman to go see the prophet, right? Um, and I, 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 just, I just put this down because I, I think this is so true. And, you know, you and I, myself included, I'm not excluding myself from this list. We struggle and we strain against insignificance, smallness, obscurity. We chase being bigger, better, importuner. Sorry about that one. I had to just kind of stick that one in there. We chase value, status, acclaim, followers, likes, comments, and post engagement. Just re- I just imagine, I'm just imagining, I was thinking about this sermon. Had, had hatches just running from one end of the church to the other. And he's saying, look at how God used me. I was taken from my home. I was castrated. I was confined to the palace. My only job was just to go back and forth. And yet I'm the one, I have the role to play here. Without me, Mordecai and Esther never come up with this plan. Mordecai and Esther never communicate, right? And he gets his, isn't that how cool this, this little boy, Hat Hatch, gets his name in the Bible, right? Just going back and forth. And I'm thinking about that first paragraph too, and, you know, whether it's you personally or, or, or your business or your organization, or this church, we struggle and we strain against insignificance, smallness, obscurity. We chase being bigger, we chase being better, more important, having more value, status. And Hat Hatch is just here running back and forth saying, look at me. Don't you understand that the insignificant, the obscure, the small, that's who God loves to use. That's who God chooses to use to go back and forth, to, to do his greatest work. And, and sometimes we look at this and we're like, oh yeah, I know that. But it's got to be like down here. It's got to have that resonance kind of down in your stomach where you just say, okay, Lord, I know that. I know that, right? That even I might be small, I might be insignificant, yet, Lord, you'll use me, right? You have a plan. You have something for me, for this church. You have a role for us, even though we don't always become with wow, look at me and how important I am and all those sorts of things. You have a role. Little hat hatch just running back and forth saying, look at me, look at me. A couple, uh, a couple other paragraphs. Here we go, five verses. You guys ready? We got these messages going back and forth. We're going to start here in verse six. Um, I, I'm just so used to calling them hat hatch. So, sorry about that. So if it's a little... Uh, hat hatch and Mordecai... So Hat Hatch went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city at the front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Also gave him a copy of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to... Instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatch went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, again, just little Hatch running back and forth, all the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put 
to death unless the king extends his gold scepter to them and spares their lives. Thirty days have passed since I was called to go see the king, right? Again, when we think about kings and queens, sometimes we have that kind of romantic image of, I don't know, maybe the Renaissance era or, or the UK where, where the king and the queen are in this great loving monogamous relationship and they're sitting on their thrones next to each other, you know, doling out justice to the people, right? Xerxes has multiple queens, has concubines, calls for people when he wants them. She hasn't even seen her, her king, her husband in a month, right? This isn't the normal kind of king-queen relationship that we probably think about when we think about Robin Hood or, I don't know, Knights of the Round Table or Monty Python or whatever, <laughs> whatever you might have, right? But here's the interesting thing about this, right, is, as Esther's trying to figure out what to do, right? Um, Esther is the only character in this narrative with two names, right? She has her kind of Persian, her pagan name, Esther, this Ishtar, this, this, um, this god of war and, and love, right? She has this name, but then she also had that name Hadassah, right? This, her, her Jewish name. And as you read this, um, she's coming to this crucial moment and you, she knows that you, there's this battle between her identity of who she is, right? Is she going, because she has a choice here, right? She can retreat into the palace and just stay as Esther, right? She can just stay there. She can hide in the palace while the chaos happens around her, right? While everybody's exterminated, annihilated around her. Esther could just hide in the palace and hope that she's safe, right? Or she can move into her real identity, Hadassah, and reclaim the name of her father, right? She, there is this identity crisis for Esther, right, where she has to make this choice. Remember, I would say this too. A lot of times when we think about Esther and we get all these romanticized ideas about kings and queens and we think that Esther has gray hair and she's so wise and royal, she's a, probably a late teenager. She was taken when she was a virgin and presented before the king. How old are you when you're a virgin and able to have sexual relationships? 13, 14 years, right? She is presented to the king. The Bible tells us about five years has happened between since when she was presented to the king and, and Haman makes his great edict. She's probably a late teenager. She's just a girl. She was born a Jew. She was thrust into this Persian identity, this Esther identity, this Queen Esther identity. And now she faces this choice of what identity is she going to choose? My father, when he was born in, my father was born in Mexico. I don't know if you guys, you guys, my dad was born in Mexico? No? Born in Mexico, moved across the border when he was just a young boy. When he was 18, he had a choice of what citizenship he was going to declare, right? He chose to be a United States citizen when he was 18. But up until that point, my father kind of lived as, as a dual citizen, right? Again, born in Mexico, raised in a, in a border town in Brownsville, in Brownsville, Texas. And then at 18, there was that moment of, of hey, what, what choice are you going to be, right? Esther has this choice, this narrative. She um, has this also really interesting thing. There is the fight or the flight or the third way. Uh, Mordecai chooses the fight. Haman comes and says, you don't want to bow down to me, right? You know, and, 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 and 
Mordecai says, I'm not going to bow down to you. I'm not going to bow down to you, Haman, right? Esther has the chance to retreat into the, into the, into the kingdom, into the castle, and say, I'm going to hide in here, right? But she chooses this third way where she says, I'm going to go in front of the king. I always love this. We talk about this so much as a, as a church, this, just this third way. You see in Mordecai, you see the fight where he stands up. You see the opportunity for uh, Esther to hide in, in the castle, to hide in the kingdom and just say, I'm not going to be a part of this conflict. And then she chooses this third way where she says, I'll go to the king. And if I die, I die. Right? We talk about the third way so much in church, um, about this kind of creative option between the standard debates, the standard conversations that so often um, are just toxic to our society, right? Two more paragraphs. You guys with me so far? Haven't lost anybody? All right. I told you this text is just, it's just so impacted. So we're going to go to <clears throat> 12 through 14. Another three verses. Let me just remind us where we were. 30 days have passed since I was called to see the king. When Esther's words were then reported back to Mordecai, Hat Hatch running back and forth, right? Hat Hatch got another answer. Don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you, but you and your father's family will perish and then this great line, this is one of the just great lines, I think, of, of the absolute, the entire Bible. I think it's one of the best sentences. And who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. All the previous circumstances of Esther's life led her to the throne where she can stand for her people, Yahweh, against injustice, against Haman, against Persia, or not, right? All of the circumstance, and we read this about how she was just this little girl, and she happened to win this beauty contest, and the king happened to like her, and all these moments have led her to the place where she can stand against Haman, against injustice, or not. And as we think about this, I think one of the great things about this sentence, about this little paragraph, is I feel, we all feel the gravity of that upon our lives, right? Let me put it like this. All of the previous circumstances of your life, of, or I guess of Brian's life, of, of Dietra's life, of Isan's, have led you to this situation, to whatever situation you're in right now where you can stand for Christ. You can stand for love. You can stand for truth against all the Hamans of the world, right? Against all the people who stand for injustice and who stand for hate and violence and oppression. You can stand against all those people or not, right? When I read that narrative about Esther, for such a time as this, Esther, you've become queen, that you can stand up against this. I feel the gravity of that on my own life, that it's not just I get to float by in life and I just get to say, well, let me just hide out in our little church and in our little neighborhood, right? That we can actually have this stand against 
all the Hamans against the injustice, against the violence, against this, against the wicked systems of this world, or not, right? And we feel that. We feel that this gravity, and it's interesting what this this writer is doing through all this this book. Um, is he's doing something, and I'm going to teach you guys a new one this morning. Are you ready? It's called a metalepsis. It's this literary echo, right? And it's, remember I said at the beginning of this chapter, I said, hey, remember this, that, that little bit, fasting and weeping and wailing? And then Mordecai launches into this, this kind of, who knows, for such a time as this that you've, been, that you've been led here, right? And what they're doing is they're echoing back to this book of Joel when the Israelites were exiled. The book of Joel starts, or it goes like this, this is in chapter two. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, like break your heart. May your heart be broken. Now, don't just rip your, your garments. Don't just do that thing. Rip your chest open and return to God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. And then he said, and then it kind of ends with this. And who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, Right? And the Bible is saying this as, as the writer is giving this kind of literary echo. It's one of the great techniques of the Bible. There's this echo of, of this old passage. It's a reminder to return, to repent, to come back and, and give the Lord your entire heart, right? Again, if, if we try and go here, you know, all the previous circumstances of your life have led you to this situation, Right? If we try and do that without the power of Christ living within us, then we just end up being just another radical on the street corner yelling and screaming. And we've seen enough of that, right? There's a part in here in which you and I, we return to the power, we repent, we live in the power of Christ. And then in that moment, then we're able to stand for against injustice, against violence, oppression, then we're able to stand. Two more verses. We get to the, if I die, I die. This is uh, the last few verses here. Esther sends his reply to Mordecai. Hat Hatch is still running back and forth, by the way, if you're still feeling insignificant or if you're still feeling obscure or overlooked. Hat Hatch is reminding you, he's saying, hey, I'm the one that relayed all these messages back and forth. Esther sends this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa. Again, fast for me, right? Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Fast for the Jews. Again, it wasn't Twitter. It wasn't Facebook. They weren't fasting from, you know, I don't know. It, it, was, it was a full fast. It was no food, drink for three days. I and my attendants will fast for you. When this is done, I will go to the king. And even though it's against the law, your Bible say, if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. If I'm killed, I'm killed. Right? If I die, I die. Right? There are a couple things happening in here. First, it's just this great echo of, um, of Jesus in the garden. Right? Jesus is in the garden saying, um, 
Father, I, I don't really want to go through with this plan. I don't want to face the cross, right? But what is those great words of Jesus in the garden? Not my will, but your will be done. This, this little passage has this almost foreshadowing, at least for us as Christians, it has this little foreshadowing of, of Jesus in the garden saying, not my will. God, I, there's all sorts of things that I, I don't necessarily want to do on my own. I don't want to face this struggle. I don't want to face this difficulty. God, it's your will that I'm after, right? It echoes Paul in Ephesians. Here's Acts, um, or Paul in Ephesus. This is recorded in the book of Acts. Paul says this as he's, as he's leaving the, Ephesus, the Ephesian church. He says, whether I live or die is not important. For I do not esteem my life as indispensable. How many people do we know just trying to hold on to their life, thinking that their life is indispensable? It's the only thing, right? Paul says, it's more important for me to fulfill my destiny and finish the, my, the ministry my Lord Jesus has assigned to me, which is to faithfully preach the wonderful news of God's grace. That includes every single person sitting in this room. That's just not for me as the pastor or the preacher. Paul's words are to every single person in this room. Whether you live or die, let me tell you this, is not important. For you do not esteem your life as indispensable. It's more important for you to fulfill your destiny and to finish the ministry Jesus has assigned to you, which is to faithfully preach, to proclaim the wonderful news of God's grace. Esther, in this moment, we get this kind of like... um, we, we get this, this moment of, of foreshadowing into these great New Testament characters. She begins to, I think this is a, a wonderful point. Someone had brought this up to me where um, they said, the women in, in Ruth and Esther, for the most part, are kind of commanded to do a bunch of stuff by the men. And so there's almost this kind of subversive note of just male domination all throughout these books, right? You know what the first thing Esther does, her first command is? to fast she she takes control the whole narrative all Ruth all Esther they've all been told what to do by other people this is the first moment where Esther stands up and she says here's what you're going to do you're going to go fast right women this is such a beautiful moment where you stand up and say you're going to go you're going to lead in a fast right again as we understand it too fasting is often accompanied by prayer Um, and she she orders this fast and she has this moment at the very end, this life or death decision. Anybody facing, but I just want to be honest, anybody facing any life or death decisions at the moment? It was, it was kind of a joke, okay? It's just, I know that we're not like in life or death moments, right? Not many of us are, or for the most part, not many of us will, right? Like there's not going to be moments in your life where you're going to have these great life or death decisions. For the most part, we just have a lot of little decisions. Are you with me on that? One of my all-time favorite quotes, this was just, when I was a junior high pastor, this was just the one that I would always tell the kids, right? And I tell it to us, too, as adults, too. I've quoted it here a thousand, not a thousand times, but a lot. Because you and I don't face life and death decisions. We're not in Esther's shoes where we're going to approach somebody, and if we die, we die. You know, we're not having this, this great and grievous moment. We don't live in a persecuted area where if we stand up for Jesus, literally, we could die, right? One of our great one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, he says this. He says, good and evil both increase at compound interest. That's why the little decisions we make every day 
are of such infinite importance. It would do you well to memorize that. That the good and evil both increase at compound interest. The little decisions you make, I make every day, have infinite importance because they compound on one another. Right? The choices that you're making right now are compounding on one another one way or the other. Right? It might not be this life or death decision now, but if you continue to make decisions that are poor decisions, decisions away from Christ, decisions away from the love of God, that will compound, that will lead you to where? To death, the destruction. Thank you. Right? If you make the choices for Christ, if you make the choices for God, if you make the choices in favor of love, that will compound, it will lead to life. Jesus says, I've come to give you life. I've come to give you that to the full. Right? And again, the little decisions that we make will ultimately be the life or death decisions. Paragraph by paragraph, I think that's enough. Then I need to drink some coffee because my mouth is get, getting dry. Let's do a little bit of discussion. Um, the three Ps, the praise, the pushback, the problems. Uh, was there a paragraph that resonated with you most? Maybe you just want to kind of flip open and, and see which paragraph was. Um, how do you strive? Bigger, better, importanter status. We all do it. So to think like, oh no, I'm too cool, I don't do that. We all do it. What do you think God would want to say to that in, the, in that striving? Uh, which statement means more to you right now um, that maybe you've come to this point in your life for such a time as this? If I die, I die, these, this decision. Um, and what little decision, good or bad, have you ever noticed compounding in your life? Okay? We good? Let's take about five minutes to do some discussion, and then we'll, we'll bring it back together.